The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible and you want to skim as we go through the passage, uh, we're going to be in Genesis 40 and 41. This is 80 verses. I will expound each one in excruciating detail. Two minutes apiece, so you do them. I'm just kidding. Um, But if you'd like to skim that, I'm actually, uh, A, not going to read the passage. I'm going to summarize it, and then we'll sort of tease some some implications out of the passage. But you may want to to scan that as we're working. Um, My purpose this morning is, first, I want to summarize the story itself. Uh, Joseph, as we've been hearing over the last several weeks, continues his trajectory uh, in, in the book of Genesis, so we want to summarize that. I'd like to tease out some, uh, some elements in the story that I think are beneficial for us to, to reflect on. Um, and then finally, I want to kind of pivot from the story itself out into a broader uh, world in terms of what this means in the book of Genesis as a whole, and even further, what it means for us as God's people, and I want to be specific there that this is a story of God's fulfilling his promise to Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Um, so I'd like to sort of talk through like what, what that looks like in this story and then what it might look like for us as well. So that's kind of where we're going today. Probably the best way to, to situate yourself is there's going to be a bunch of things that come at you. Uh, so my advice would be don't try to grab all of it. Uh, just as you're listening, think of one, am I doing that? What do I do to not do that? I just have to be quiet? Oh, that's counterintuitive. I don't, not usually loud, so. Um, yeah, so, so to try to grab one or two that you really connect with or ways that you might feel even a little bit of resistance, and then I'm going to put you in the driver's seat in terms of asking questions, and we're going to spend a good chunk of time. If, if there's anything that you'd like me to sort of amplify what I said or expound on it a little bit more, uh, we'll interact in that way, and you guys can, can all sort of set the tone for, for what we uh, reflect on this morning. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, we thank you for the world that you've made, and we thank you that in the beauty of all that we see, in the glory and the majesty of all that you have created, that that alone uh, is, is reason to praise you. Um, but even further than that, you have put us in your world as image bearers. Um, our existence is a gift. Um, the use of our minds and our bodies and uh, the ways that we can Uh, know you and know each other, that we can have joyful experiences, that we can experience uh, what it is to be human. These are all great gifts, and we thank you for them. Uh, As we reflect this morning uh, on this portion of your word, I pray that it would be words of life and encouragement uh, to us. Um, We each come from very unique uh, personality types. We come from unique Uh, circumstances, and we would all hear this in different ways. And I pray that even that diversity would give us uh, a sense of joy at all that you're doing uh, in our midst, and that we might hear uh, these words together, that they might give us life as individuals, and and also life and uh, purpose and encouragement as a church. Amen. 
Uh, so to summarize uh, Genesis 40 and 41, uh, we talk, we've been talking about Joseph over the last several weeks. Uh, Joseph is uh, confined, and in this particular story, he actually meets uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer, and he meets a chief baker. And this is probably the one time I would tend to get distracted at where the idea being that there's somebody whose sole purpose is to bake things for you. Now, so Pharaoh has a chief baker. I'm not ordinarily enamored of people in power. Like, I don't like making decisions. I don't like people, like, looking to me to make decisions. So power is just always, and it corrupts people inherently. But the idea that there would be somebody whose sole purpose is to make pastries for me at any given moment, um, I was tempted just to research that and say, like, this is actually the whole point of the book of Genesis is, is pastries. Um, so anyway, he, he meets uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and, and chief baker. Um, my usual strategy is just to lay on the living room floor and just like in parable form, just say like, if only there was somebody who could make me a pan of brownies as I look around at everybody in my house and they all ignore me and then I have to go make my own. But there, if there was like a position where you could like, like, hey, I'm looking for a Twinkie. And somebody could do, so, okay, so that's the last time I'm going to get distracted. If any of you'd like to apply for this position, uh, at monster.com, just post your resume. Um, so Pharaoh meets these two individuals uh, in his imprisonment. And both of these men have dreams, which, Pharaoh in, or which Joseph interprets for them. So he interprets the dream favorably in the case of the cupbearer. And then the baker sees that this dream has been interpreted favorably, so I too will present uh, my dream to Joseph. And Joseph interprets the dream for him, and it's not good news. Um, so it's unfavorable for him. Joseph's only request, because these are two people of influence, they're people of power, is when you get out of this imprisonment, just remember me before Pharaoh. Speak, speak favorably. And... Uh, in a, in a case that I think Joseph kind of deserves, they, they don't remember him. They forget. They're both released from their imprisonment, and they, they don't uh, remember Joseph. Some time passes, and their dreams are fulfilled. Uh, so the cupbearer is restored to his position. Pharaoh, uh, I think the language is, lifts his face, uh, returns him to his prominent position, and then uh, the chief baker as well is... Uh, lifted in a different, uh, he is judged, he is uh, executed by Pharaoh in fulfillment of the dream that he had uh, for Joseph. So time goes by, these dreams are fulfilled, and in the passing of time, Pharaoh himself has a dream, and it disturbs him, and it causes the cupbearer to remember Joseph. So Pharaoh has this disturbing dream, which all of our watching of I don't know, strange anime has prepared us for. You have these seven plump, luscious cows coming out of the water, followed by seven scrawny, starving cows. And the scrawny, starving ones actually devour the, the, plump, uh, the plump cows. And Pharaoh has this, this dream, and it, it disturbs him. Um, and he has another one about heads of grain, where these healthy heads of grain appear, and then these, these, in a sense, starved heads of grain devour the healthy ones. Uh, both cases of seven. Um, and in any case, he is uh, he's disturbed by this dream. 
And he's looking for somebody who could professionally interpret his dream. And this is what causes the cupbearer to remember, oh, right, there's this, this person I knew uh, way back in the day, because two years have gone by, um, who could interpret this dream. And this is where Joseph is given a prominent position to be able to interpret the dream for Pharaoh. Now, Joseph, in what I would call an uncharacteristic show of humility, says, I can't interpret the dream, but God, in essence, can. And in fact, he does. So he gives Pharaoh the interpretation of the dream. And this is a significant thing in the life of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh's dream basically means that there is going to be a seven-year period of abundance followed by a seven-year period of famine. And in both of his dreams, that's what the interpretation means. So this is the content of the dream. And because of this, and because of his wisdom and his discernment, Joseph is elevated uh, again to um, a position of prominence, and he's given basically the task of managing these years in the life of Egypt. So that's chapter 40 and 41 in a nutshell. And I'd be happy to have you sort of ask any clarifying questions as you skim through and you see some things that might be... Um, things you want to expound on in a little bit more detail. But that's basically like the 10,000-foot overview. What I'd like to do is just sort of pivot toward some observations that I think are significant and worth our time to reflect on. The first uh, being that two years go by and Joseph is forgotten. So jo Joseph interprets the dream of the, the cupbearer and the chief baker two years go by and he's just, I mean, not sitting there, but, but he is forgotten. And I think that there's real value in terms of our scope of time. Like two years is a long time. Um, and we're caught in this position in our culture where I can have access to an incredibly diverse set of time, like you have Google Photos or Facebook memories pop up and you can look at like, how has it been that two years has gone by already? And you, you look at pictures and think like, how could that have been only two years? That's kind of the more positive side. And then the negative side is the Amazon primization of our culture, which creates this incredible impatience that I could be laying in bed and I could order a cup of water on Amazon Prime, and it could be delivered by drone, and then I, I sense this moral outrage if it doesn't come fast enough. Like, what do you mean it's gonna take 10 minutes for my cup of water? I don't actually know if you can get a cup of water on Amazon. Can, you, can somebody search that up? Like, order a cup of, cup of water, maybe, I don't know. But the idea that we would have to wait weeks or even months for something to come to us causes us to lose our concept of time. And when we come to the Bible, I think it's important to realize we're reading this through in 10 minutes, but two years have passed that Joseph is in the position that he's in. So it might help us to reframe what does it look like for us to wait for God to fulfill his promise or to act on our behalf, um, at least in this instance the time passing is pretty significant. The second element of the story that I think is significant and worth uh, reflecting on, we start to see some explicit references to where Joseph is a different person now, right? Like everything up to this point has been Joseph is 
the typical little brother, I'm sorry if you're a little brother, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and if you're an older brother, you definitely know what I'm talking about. Like everything up to this point, I think Joseph deserves. Like it's partly Jacob's fault that he's playing favorites with his children, um, which causes his brothers not to act out of simple jealousy, right? This isn't like them working out like dad loves him more. There's also economic factors involved here that the oldest son is actually entitled to a double portion of the inheritance. So the idea that the youngest is being shown this kind of favoritism actually has significant ramifications for all of them as individuals. So, um, so it's, it's a much broader kind of economic issue. But the point being, Joseph doesn't start out in a good way. Um, he, in a sense, deserves uh, what he gets. Maybe not to that extent, but he's a different person here, right? As the people of God, our first response, I think, should be humility before the Lord to say, like, we don't have the answers that our city needs and that the only place that we're going to be able to turn, in addition to these resources that we can facilitate, uh, we need to be turning to the Lord as well. So there is this sense of self-forgetfulness on Joseph's part. The second thing I would say under this category is that blessing meets a tangible need, right? So here, God forewarns Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt, that there is an impending famine. Seven years seems like kind of a long time, but if you're trying to gather food for an entire nation, seven years seems, seems to be adequate to gather. And that's what they're going to do in case you're not familiar with the story. They're going to use those seven abundant years to sort of set some stuff aside so that when the lean years come, they've got, they've got stuff in the storehouses. And in this case, God, by forewarning Pharaoh, preserves life, not just for God's own people, but for Egypt. And uh, at the end of chapter 41, it says the whole world, right? God is acting to preserve life for the whole world in a tangible way. Now, Christians sometimes can be over-spiritual about things, and sometimes that's okay, and sometimes it can be a distraction. Um, but in this case, it doesn't lead to widespread conversion, right? It's not like a big evangelistic crusade. It just keeps people from starving. And I don't know if it's like the Irish in me where it's like you just you can't fall off the floor, but I just like these people are not going to starve, and that's awesome. Like, maybe, maybe I'm setting the bar too low, but basic preserving of life is amazing uh, on God's part, especially on this, on this scale. And I think that this provides a helpful framework for us to think about how we surround or how we relate to the surrounding culture. So just a couple verses up here. Um, you've heard me say this one before. This should frame most of how we think about life in our city. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare, right? There's nothing inherently spiritual about that. And at least the way the Bible and even the New Testament as we get into Luke, there's not this sort of sacred spiritual divide, right? We want people to have access to programs that will help them. Mental health crisis is huge in our culture, like beyond huge. Um, and we're sort of seeing like the current generation of adults. As it continues, you're going to be looking at the next generation as well. I won't say too much about that other than to say 
it's not an inherently spiritual thing. Like working for the welfare of the city is going to involve showing God's compassion in a very diverse set of ways. And my only point here is to show this is what the Bible talks about. So this whole, like, we want to meet spiritual needs, yes, that's important. We also want to be on mission in the way that shows the heart of God in both the Old and New Testament. When Peter, if we fast forward to the New Testament with Galatians, this is the next one, he meets Peter and James and John, and they're sort of sorting out their gospel and all these doctrinal things and making sure that Paul's up to snuff on being who he says he is. And the, the final thing is they only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do, right? And I think especially where, like, we're a couple days from the midterms and people are throwing their political stuff out there, the heart of God in the Bible is compassion for people. There's nothing mean-spirited about what Paul's saying here, right? It's compassion. And this is the heart of God, and it meets tangible need, much in the same way that, that preserving food in order to preserve life in Egypt is the same. And then finally, James 2, just as another example. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Right? This is Jesus' brother saying this. Right? So, so I don't know how much more spiritual you could be other than being like the little brother of Jesus. Like you, you probably, maybe that's where the whole Joseph thing falls apart, like you're Jesus' little brother. So you're probably inherently spiritual. But um, he's, he's saying that if we're not going to be meeting tangible needs, like what, what good is that? Um, so might be some things you want to push back on there. Might be some things you want to ask questions about. I'm good with all that. So these verses, and a lot like them, they all speak to just this inherent compassion on the part of God's people. And I don't think they need to be thought of simply as a means to converting people, right? There's no agenda here. It's just compassion. Paul doesn't say, remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do so that they become saved. Like, he doesn't say that, right? James talks about meeting tangible needs, and there's not anything inherently spiritual about it, except that if you're acting in ways that are consistent with following Jesus, you are going to meet those needs as well. And that, just to maybe add to this a little bit, if you have opportunity and, and you can sense that the Spirit's at work in that way, by all means, um, go ahead and, and speak, speak those truths, but there's no agenda on, on the part of the New Testament. So it's not just as a means of converting people. This should just be in the DNA of who we are as followers of Jesus and who modeled this way of self-giving love for others. And there's just, I, I don't want to be prescriptive, there's just so many different and diverse ways that we can express meeting the physical, spiritual, psychological, emotional needs of other people. What is incumbent on us as God's people is look for the ways that we can be a blessing. Like, what are the ways that we can cause the people around us to flourish, right? What does that look like? It, to me at least, and this is just my own personal, uh, I'm not speaking for the eldership here, any kind of mean-spirited, sarcastic, coy, clever, like, 
political posts, like that kind of stuff, that's just, it's just mean-spirited. It's not, it's not helpful. And it's not anybody here. Like, you already would have got a phone call from me if it was you. Like, I'm, I'm talking out there in the world. Like, no, and I'm not kidding either. Like, you, you would definitely have me on the phone like, hey, what's that all about? Um, could you just go ahead and, and talk to me about where that came from? Um, and I don't even know what my point was there, uh, other than to say it can look different in all these diverse ways, but it's always going to be consistent with the fruit of the Spirit, right? If you have to be sarcastic and mean to get your point across, if you have to be aggressive, I just need you to show me where Jesus did that, and then, then I'll, I'll get some buy-in. So I'll tie that off before I, before I go off the deep end. And finally, one more thing. The biblical portrait of this sense of blessing, it shifts in the, in the New Testament, right? So the Old Testament, you're primarily focused on nation building, right? You've got Israel setting themselves up as a geopolitical identity. Um, and the idea there was always that as a nation, they would be a blessing to the nations around them, right? That was always God's heart, always the intention. Even when you're in the obscure laws in Leviticus, right? The idea was that Israel was setting up a national life that was meant to be a light to the nations. And that shifts in the New Testament to where Jesus is describing the kingdom of God. This is no longer God's people being defined as a geopolitical entity, right? We are people, as Revelation describes, seven times from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, right? The diversity is a gift from God, and it's going to take all of that to offer the praise that he's due, right? It's not just going to be English praise choruses in the new heavens and new earth. It's going to take the full range of what God has done in terms of blessing cultures and blessing people and even languages. All that stuff is at play in the kingdom of God, and it's not defined anymore by national boundaries. I'll just say that with the primary, or the, uh, the general election in two days. So we're not defined by that anymore, and Jesus calls his followers to be salt and light. So I'm going to stop there. I think that this sense of, if I can go all the way back to Joseph, I know we've, we've gone relatively quickly. Um, Joseph opens his, himself up into this much, much wider world of blessing. He engages this self-forgetfulness. He's outwardly focused now on God's fulfillment of his promises to be a blessing to the nations. And I think a question for us to reflect on as I close is, do our actions, both as individuals and as a church, reflect a compassionate vision for the flourishing of others? And I'm going to stop right there, and we've got some time for not just questions, but if there's things that you want me to, like, amplify or if I kind of, like, irked you with something that I said. I'm happy to clarify that. The question is about sort of harm reduction was the term that you used. And I, I guess I think of it in terms of how do you show compassion that isn't also at the same time enabling? So my cousin is uh, a pharmacist in um, Salt Lake City, and we were talking about that very issue a couple summers ago where he's very much in favor of that sort of, like, um, sort of a manageable dose and how effective that was. I can't speak to that because it's not my area of expertise. I guess my answer would be like on the individual, I don't, I don't know anything like policy-wise that can account for the complexity of human beings, but on the individual level, I would tend to want to err on the side of compassion. And I find anecdotally that um, 
that the people that I know who don't err on the side of compassion tend to not attach a human face to the problem. So that when we're thinking about addiction, we're thinking about mental health, we're thinking about any number of the complex issues facing just our own city, I very much want people to be thinking about a person and not an idea, right? So um, I don't know if that speaks to the, to the question or not. And it has to be, I guess, I, just case by case. Um, I, I, I guess I would, I would want to err on the side of compassion, right? So, so you take this scenario with Joseph. Are there going to be people who receive the benefit of the years of saving who didn't save themselves, like who, who weren't like personally responsible in the midst of all that? Like, yeah, and you know what? So what, right? So if somebody's gonna use, if they're gonna use money uh, from the state in order to buy a cell phone, like I, or whatever it is, um, like those are sorts of the conversations that we have, like yeah, they're just using it to buy cigarettes. Like, okay, well, I'm not gonna police all that. Um, I'd rather err on the side of compassion. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm kind of talking around your question. I just don't see a, a systemic answer that's going to account for all that. I think it has to be on a case-by-case -case basis. Because honestly, I think it's helpful stuff for us to think about as a church. And I guess the other thing I would say, too, is like working in Manchester over the last five or six years has been very eye-opening for me in terms of like, I had parents who held me accountable, and when I was a complete twit in middle school, like, held me accountable and punished me, and, like, I owe, I owe them a lot. I come from a very stable family. And then to now try to imagine, like, what would it be like to, to not have that? Um, not even just for myself over the long haul, but, like, day to day. Yeah, you're gonna, you know, it doesn't excuse bad behavior, but at the same time, I'd rather develop this reservoir of compassion for people. Um, I usually find, like, the harshest responses in myself don't come from a good place. It's usually a feeling of entitlement, because, you know, I grew up in upstate New York near farms and had wide open country to look at. Like, I don't know what it would be like to spend my summer vacation in a hot apartment in downtown Manchester and to live 40 minutes from the beach and to have never been to it, like, I don't, I don't, that would be terrible to me, like, but that's the reality that some people face. And then to only grow up in a home where, like, you're being raised by your grandparents because your parents are incarcerated, that's tough. Like, I, I don't have a response to that other than compassion, right? And, and I think that even if that means we get taken advantage of a little bit, I'm, I'm okay with that. Uh, but I'm just speaking for myself there. I want us all to be responsible stewards, and, but, but responsible stewardship shouldn't mean that I'm going to be like harsh with people when I've had every advantage growing up. So you're saying on the part of the like, giver of time and resources, like, oh, I'm afraid that if I respond in the wrong way to a person, in a, like, and, and in a sense kind of making it about my own, my own fear. Yeah, and I, but I think there also is a sense of um, meaningful human agency in terms of God doesn't just follow Israel around as like, and he doesn't enable, um, that there does come a point at which, and I think that we, so I guess as, as a two on the Enneagram, um, I want to be very aware, especially as we get to Luke's gospel, that Jesus has very specific boundaries around access, around his own spiritual discipline. So 
it's not that we just sort of endlessly burn ourselves out showing compassion, because um, Jesus even said the poor you're always going to have among you. So there is some something to be considered in that instance. And I don't think that there, there's ever like a static answer to that question, like a one size fits all. Um, at the same time, I do think that it is incumbent on us to be aware of like what are our own mental health concerns as people try to consume us. Not willfully, but I mean, if you've ever been in that situation, you, you, you know what I'm talking about, where it's like, I'm, I need to escape to Neptune for like a month and nobody's allowed to talk to me. I think that there is a balance to be struck there in terms of not letting people consume you. And that's where I think community can be a healthy, can be a healthy thing. Like somebody who can help you pump the brakes on that stuff. Somebody who can even give you permission to say like, you've really done all you could here. It, it might be time to set some, set some boundaries. I think that it's a really good question. And I think it's important to go back to like the Great Commission um, where the better, instead of go and make disciples of all nations, like go is not the command there. Go is a participle. So it's as you are going, make disciples of all nations. So, so the anxiety we have about like, I have to present the, the gospel, like as I'm out at dinner with my friends, like, I, like that, that doesn't, that comes from a place of anxiety, I think, unless you have, uh, I, I guess, and, and just, I'm gonna just cut that off and, and let it go. Um, I think that in the New Testament, there is this sort of holistic, Paul's just living his life and being a follower of Jesus is a part of his DNA, so it's as natural a thing as ever for him to, to go and I imagine build relationships as he's working alongside people, as he's a couple years here and there all over Asia Minor. Um, and using the opportunities that he has. Like, we don't have a lot of explicit material, but I think that that's a much more winsome model than, like, I'm only here to evangelize. And some of it has been, like, mistakes I've made over years in teaching where there were Christian teachers that didn't have great reputations because there was that agenda attached versus, like, I'm here, we're all here for the same thing. I love my friends. Uh, I love working with them. I love being alongside them. I have no agenda. But I am keenly aware of when are the times that it might be okay and where they might be open to that. And that's not anxiety. It's like I'm, I'm being present and attentive. Um, so yeah, I think that anything that reduces the anxiety level or the sense that like God's looking at you like you went out to dinner with your friends and you didn't even you know, present the gospel. Like I don't think God's really like that. And I think that the Great Commission, again, as you are going, like as you're living your life, it's just a part of our, our DNA as, as disciples of Jesus, that we, we love our friends and we show compassion, and, and as we have opportunity, we talk about the things we believe. And I do think that there is a sense psychologically where we have to overcome fear as a motivating factor and just be aware of people and meet them and like just find ways to be in, in the pathway of people without any kind of a theological agenda because we do have to establish credibility, right? It's, it's not, we're not in a position of power here and we shouldn't be because we're the, we're the worst when we are. <laughs> like we, the church could not be worse than when, when they're in a position of, of prominence and setting the agenda. Like it's much better as a people to people and I think that's what Jesus modeled all founded on self-sacrificing love. So, anything else before I pray and usher myself off the stage? All right, let's pray. God, the things that we've uh, thought and discussed today, I pray 
uh, that you would fan into flame those things that are from you, that if we've had a, a word or an insight, that, that those would be things that impact the way that we engage our neighbors, engage our friends, the ways that we think about you and the faithfulness of your character and how we, how we relate to, to the life around us. Uh, by your spirit, I pray that you would empower us to live these things out. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.